0: New Year everyone and uh, welcome to 2023 and another episode of Roots, a Jazz Impressions podcast. Uh, my name's Ollie. My name's Dan. And together we run jazzimpressions.co.uk, a music blog designed as a game of musical ping pong uh, where we explore musical connections one track at a time. And this marks our 10th episode, um, a
1: special episode. Dan, why is that? We have decided to pay tribute to two great artists we lost A year ago, uh, almost exactly. And they died within two days of each other. James Matume passed on the 9th of January, 2022. Khan Jamal, the 10th of January, 2022. So, Ollie, what track have you chosen? I chose Breath of Life by
0: the Khan Jamal Creative Arts Ensemble. What about you? I've picked
1: the song Matume by Harold Land. Oh, nice. Okay. So kind of indirect reference Yeah, I mean we'll start there because Matume features on percussion on A New Shade of Blue Mm. Which was released on mainstream in 1971 Fantastic lineup. Uh, it's Bobby Hutchison, of course, on Vibes, William Henderson on piano, Buster Williams bass, Matume, of course, on Congers, and Billy Hart on drums, who we saw play at Peter Express not two months ago. And he's still got it. I mean,
0: how old is he now? Like mid 80s or something? Yeah. Or like, it, it was crazy. It like, was really friendly, in spoke to him. Really nice. Um, yeah, but just amazingly kind of sprightly
1: for someone that age and mm-hmm. this album was not recorded in the pizza express no <laughs> <laughs> um, but leonard feather apparently saw this band play live and he wrote in his review uh if this group could be recorded just the way they played tonight it would be quote one of the monster jazz lps of the year wow and they did and it was yeah i mean it's, it's
0: just such a good album i mean if you have a, a lineup like that yeah, you've got Buster Williams, you've got Matume, you've got Howard Land, you've got Bobby Hutchison. I mean, that already is just such like, a solid set of musicians who complement each other so well as well.
1: Yeah, and you it's know. got a real dusty, an ambient, slightly like, strange spiritual sound to the recording. Mm-hmm. It's very different from Howard Land's previous West Coast stuff, which is much well, cooler. I think that's why it's kind of an outlier album. Like when you look at how,
0: like you were saying, Howard Land's work generally is a lot more kind of better produced than. well I say better produced I mean it's got more of a kind of clean sheen to the music Um, but this is probably this is really earthy and I think a lot of the releases I've got quite a few records on mainstream records there's another actually Harold Land record on mainstream Coma
1: Brackets Burn
0: yeah Brackets Burn that's a wicked album yeah Um, and again it's got that quality um, that kind of very earthy um, I mean it's 1971 so it's that you've got the spiritual jazz leanings coming through. Yeah. It's a bit like Hutchison stuff as well. The early 70s Bobby Hutchison records have a similar quality, mm. but because a lot of those were still coming out on blue note, they got that, you know. Yeah. They've still got that kind of that blue note perfection, whereas this has a bit of grit to it, a bit yeah. of, you know.
1: Well, the, um, whereas blue note is uh, characterised by an incredible separation between the instruments. This is the opposite, mm. and um, in All About Jazz, the review says that the recording is raw going on rough. It sounds as though there's one microphone to spend it over the band. Mm. And uh, if you were to look at the mixing desk, all of the dials would be on red. <laughs> and it really does like, like our that. podcast recording. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, we've just got the one microphone hanging over us here. Yeah, earthy. That's what we're all about, you know, one room feel. <laughs> <laughs> it was produced by Bob Shad, and the review says... Shad knew precisely what he was doing and the result is the absolute Coyote's cojones. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's great. It's just, it's just a great, great outing from start to finish. Um, no weak tracks. And again, it's just one of the, the great kind of, I think, collaborations in jazz. Yeah. It's Hutchison and Land coming together to work. A bit like, you know, you have Miles Davis
1: and Gil Evans. Yeah. They're like these power couples in jazz. I think we talked about their meeting in a previous episode yeah, but was kicked out from working in New York because he lost his cabaret card due to for, for smoking a joint. Yeah, in a park. <laughs> so I went to the West Coast, yes, you do. and that was, of course, where Harold Land was based. Rest um, is history. Yeah. <laughs> where did you go from there? Then, so you went from Matume by Harold Land. My next track is West Coast Blues by Harold Land on the album West Coast Blues exclamation <laughs> mark released on Jazzland in 1960.
0: that you know we were just saying you know by the 70s you've got that kind of fiery earthy spiritual leaning kind of um, jazz that's being put out and this is recorded what 10 about 10 years prior yeah and it's that more polished like we were talking about different lineup of musicians but a much
1: more kind of polished and traditional setup it's a beautiful bit of west coast jazz it has that loping 6-4 rhythm that just feels like driving down a Californian freeway. That's definitely not something you bring up at like, you know, social gatherings.
0: You know, it's the kind of thing that get, like, gets you alienated from certain gatherings. Well, depending on what the gathering is, but generally most, if you turn up and you start talking about loping 6-4 rhythms, generally people are like, well,
1: what the hell are I you talking about? And it doesn't get you a lot of friends. I know, that's why I'm doing this. <laughs> and again, a brilliant lineup. Uh, Sam Jones on bass, Louis Hayes on drums, Barry Harris on piano, who we also lost a year ago, mm. uh, December uh, 2021. Joe Gordon mm. on trumpet and Wes Montgomery on guitar, who wrote the song. And Wes Montgomery, I mean, what can you say? He's the Don, maybe the most influential jazz guitarist in the world. Mm. He had this uh, unique playing style where he used his thumb, uh, which was apparently uh, to make it quieter, because he used to work as a machinist during the day and so he practiced late at night and to so keep his neighbours from complaining, he developed this quieter style of playing with his thumb. Oh, that's interesting. That's one story, anyway. It made me. Uh...
0: Yeah, the other story just says
1: he had terrible technique. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't afford a plectrum. <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: <laughs> that's amazing, though. I didn't know that, that's really interesting. He also had this conception to his solos, which was built in three tiers, Mm. where he would start by playing single note lines, uh, and then he would move on to playing octaves, and then finally block chords. So if you listen to his solos, you can sort of hear this structure. Oh, interesting. And it was incredibly influential, almost like the guitar equivalent of Jacob Pistorius, in that people would try and emulate the way he used his thumb, and also the octaves yeah 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 that's interesting Harold Land I think is such a good synthesis of hard bop on the one hand Mm. which was obviously more associated with the east coast but because he was uh, raising his family Mm. he stayed on the west coast which is why he didn't necessarily get the dues of a lot of his contemporaries Mm. but he does Mm. manage to have that West Coast sound on the one hand, very laid back. It's like cool jazz. Yeah. Kind of similar, like around the same period, you've got cool jazz becoming
0: popular yeah. and things like that. It's got leanings of that. But, but with the like, fieriness as well. Right. And the kind of yeah, the urgency yeah. of East East Coast bop, and yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, that because obviously he was he was in New York originally, right before he went out to the West Coast.
1: Yeah, I think he was with Clifford Brown right. and Max Roddick. Right,
0: so a lot of these guys, they cut their teeth in New York, and then obviously he happened to go out to the West Coast. But you can hear that East Coast influence in his play Yeah, from playing with you know a lot of the the guys in New York and stuff. But yeah, great great track, really 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 nice. You know,
1: but again, I think it showcases really well the other side of land. My next pick is another Wes Montgomery piece, mm-hmm. uh, four, four on six. Hey. From the incredible jazz guitar of Wes Montgomery, his second album, released on Riverside in 1960.
0: track is triggering for you that is incredibly triggering due to the fact that i know that was used by someone for some hip-hop joint i and i can't i feel like it's on the tip of my tongue but i can't remember it. if anyone knows can you just dm us on uh, on instagram to let me know because this has happened before every time you play me this track it sends this thing and even now i've just been like trying to work out for the life of me where it's from. It's the opening, the boom, boom, boom,
1: boom, 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 boom. It's an ingenious riff. Really catchy, it's It's an an ostinato. Sets up this blues, um, which is kind of based on what he does with West Coast Blues as well. Mm. Uh, It's interesting in its timing. It's a four, four, played over a six, eight. So two bars, of four, and then a six. Hence four on six. Yeah. There's also a link, to Matume. And I wonder if you know what it is, irrespective of uh, Howard Land. No, I don't know what that link is. <laughs> but uh, you are going to tell me. The rhythm section right. is Tommy Flanagan piano, Percy Heath on bass, Albert Heath drums. Ah, The Heath brothers. So it's the Heath brothers. They are the uncles of Matume. Right. Matume was Jimmy Heath's son. Right, yeah. Son.
0: I, I found that out recently and it was like, again, it kind of blew my mind. Yeah, I didn't cause... know it until
1: I read... Miles Davis book. And then it
0: kind of makes sense because you're like, the Heath Brothers put out loads of great kind of records. They put like a load of good stuff out on Muse, and also Strata East, the famous record by the Heath Brothers that was sampled for Nas. Um, I think the, the album was marching on, specifically on Strata East, but Matume features it's all of these same musicians in that same scene recording on these similar labels at the end of the, the 60s, early 70s. Um, and it kind of makes complete sense that you have Matume playing with the Heath brothers, yeah. you know, or being related to the Heath brothers, and them all kind of moving in similar
1: musical circles. Yeah, I think Jimmy Heath didn't actually raise Matume because he was in and out of prison for heroin offences, which is why it's kind of lost this fact that actually the great saxophonist Jimmy Heath is the father of James Foreman Matume. And this track is quintessential Wes Montgomery, the blues, incredible solos, these call and response lines that he does where he sort of poses a question uh, and then it's answered. All music says that the incredible jazz guitar of Wes Montgomery established Montgomery as the most formidable modern guitarist of the era and eventually its most influential. I think
0: he's definitely like along with Grant Green when it comes to like especially in kind of like samples and hip-hop and stuff. I think his stuff has been sampled so many times. Yeah. Probably because of these kind of single note lines, they're very kind of like catcher and definitely like Dilla I was a big fan of Wes Montgomery and, yeah. you know, flipped a lot of his stuff. But um, yeah, interesting, great pick. Where did, you, where
1: did you go from there then? Next, the track Four On Three by Khan <laughs> Jamal hey. on his album Percussion and Strings, released on CIMP in 1999.
0: Track. I mean, the album itself, Percussion in Strings, I'm just looking at the lineup here. You know, as the title suggests, it's Percussion in Strings, yeah. but you've got two people on drums and kind of percussion, I think and Marimba, and then you've got Khan Jamal himself on a Marimba and a vibraphone in that case, um, and then you've got the bass player and the cello player. Yeah,
1: it's obscure. It's on CIMP, which stands for Creative Improvised Music Projects. Mm which seems to be run by a family with this guy, Bob Roosh, founding it in 95. Uh, His son, Mark, is the recording engineer and his daughter, Kara, does the cover art.
0: Oh, right. Oh, they've got quite a strong visual identity as well. Like All their albums have similar
1: kind of vibes to them. No pun intended. (laughs) This is in 3-4, so I wanted to kind of keep halving these time signatures. Four and six.
0: See? Always the creative roots. (laughs) You know, putting me to shame.
1: (laughs) Uh, Heavy Monk influence on this album with uh, Blue Monk and Round Midnight are on here, as well as a track called Sphere, which I assume is named after Thelonious Sphere Monk. Oh, yeah. I have not actually clocked that, but yeah, you're probably right. And another track called Another Kind of Blue, which links to uh, A New Shade of Blue, the first album we talked about. Right. Okay, nice. Khan Jamal I mean again also influenced by Bobby Hutchison which mm. links to the first album as well definitely I think he's a kind of like Khan Jamal is definitely
0: he's an unsung musician definitely. you know I, I think now obviously in certain circles people know who he is but you know when you talk about jazz his discography was you know sm- way smaller than someone like Hutchison's was he was often you know sideman for various projects um, and then he had his own kind of amazing releases he did but again they just didn't have the same promotion or the the, 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 the same scope yeah. that other people like Milt Jackson and Bobby Hutchison had. But nevertheless, an incredible incredible vibes player. Yeah. One of the best. Um, I mean, it's an unusual
1: instrument anyway. There's not actually that many vibes players in the yeah. jazz. if you compare them to horn players or pianists. Especially ones who were able to revolutionise the instrument. I mean, it's Milt Jackson, it's Bobby Hutchison, and then it's Khan Jamal in terms of interesting creative experiments that he did right. instrument Milt Jackson's kind of
0: more traditional in terms of the scope of what he recorded yeah. obviously due to when he was recording then you've got Bobby Hutchison who was a real kind of explorer through the 60s and 70s leaned into this kind of spiritual free jazz stuff but never kind of quite went that far out whereas I think Khan Jamal is really the, 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 the biggest kind of traveller of them all in terms of experimentation and moving into the free area where you know, he bought out albums that are effectively free jazz. I mean, his very first album um, under his own name, Give the Vibes Some, uh, which was a uh, a French album, which is basically just a free jazz album uh just recorded with trumpet, vibraphone, marimba and drums on a, on the French label Palm. But it's just kind of, yeah, you, you don't hear Bobby Hutchison going quite as yeah. far out as that. So I think, you know, credit to Khan Jamal. He's one of those real explorers sonically.
1: Well, um, let's bring it home and listen to the final selection, which is Breath of Life by the Karm Jamal Creative Art Ensemble, released on Dramadance to the Motherland, uh, Dogtown Records, 1973. <laughs> I mean, that is... uh, Nothing else sounds like that. I mean, it's... Especially for 1973. I think when you first played that to me, I assumed it was from, like, the last 20 years.
0: It's like dub. Yeah. It's like like listening to a King Tubby record. Yeah. You get that weird radio snippet that comes in, like, two minutes in, and it's like something that you'd hear in a Mad Lib beat. Just this weird kind of... And then it just cuts out again. The more you delve into independent kind of private press releases in any genre, the more you go left and the more far out you go. And it's real like outsider music. So yeah, just to put it in uh, context, um, it was Khan Jamal's first album uh, that he recorded, uh, released in 1973. And Jamal co-founded the Philadelphia American Jazz Collective uh, Sounds of Liberation in the early 70s. Um, and this was an ensemble that had strong links with the Black Arts Movement of the time and social activism, and uh, the, you know the sound of the group was inspired by artists like Pharaoh Sanders, but also Curtis Mayfield and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. They melded jazz, funk, free jazz, and spiritual jazz, um, like a lot of releases at the time. And they recorded like Kandji Mar recorded loads of amazing albums as we were talking about through the seventies and eighties on small labels, but. Um, this is really his like magnum opus and yeah. in terms of in collecting terms it's one of like the rarest
1: and they they, kind they released really 300
0: copies right I was just going to say 300 copies originally released of it um, and it's become so sought after by collectors and it was reissued a fair few years back and it's, it's unlike like I said it's one of those rare albums that you hear and you're like it's such a unique sound there's four tracks on the record and this is the final track and arguably i think it's it's my favorite track of the record the whole record's great but it moves through free jazz kind of psychedelia and dub you know and again you don't hear dub influence on 70s jazz records really you don't hear that in the production Um, and a lot of that's to do with they had a sound engineer uh, mario falana who was basically Um, adding real-time effects to the band as they played yeah so all of that crazy kind of like um, delay and feedback and all of those things and maybe even the radio snippets that came from the engineer Mm -hmm. so he was almost performing live with them as a member of the band and i mean you know you look at the early 70s so around the same time was it 73 you've got miles davis's on the corner and on the corner you had uh teo marcero cutting up the yeah. sessions that miles and the band have done and splicing them together you had bands like soft machine mm. late 60s early 70s doing kind of um, kind of tape experiments. you had bands like Cannes in germany again taking that same approach you know having long jam sessions and then splicing it together but again to have actually the engineer live mm. doing stuff is incredibly forward thinking, I I, I feel anyway, from a performance perspective obviously now with electronic music and you know, club culture and all of this stuff and sample culture, it's a lot more common, you go out, you see a band and you see someone maybe on electronics, but this is in the 70s, you know, so we're talking pre-computers pre-any of this stuff, you know, using analog gear to do this and I think that's what gives it such a unique vibe the fact that it, it, it just kind of swirls in this kind of heady ambience of and you know, it's incredibly mellow, yeah um, and it feels almost like an ambient record. It's a great track to end on. Mm. you know And there's definitely that connection, you know we've, we're talking about the more you go left when it comes to music, the more you go away from the music industry from major labels, the more honesty often mm. comes out of music. Um, that's not to say that stuff released on major labels isn't musically honest, but you find that these cult recordings that were basically self-produced. By somebody in their own house or very limited releases often don't have any of that um, yeah. interference um, from major labels and they are really honest musical expressions of the artist at that time yeah. often these artists may not have even had the money a lot of these things were only been discovered in the last you know 10, 20 years, having never been released properly because the artist didn't have the money or they only put out a limited. Yeah, You know, which case in point, 300 copies, these were probably distributed at the gig. By the musical equivalent of an independent film. Right, the same kind of thing, exactly. And it's just got that, I think also it's that lo-fi quality. It's very reminiscent of uh, artists like Sun Ra. Yeah. Again, Sun Ra released music in a very DIY fashion. You know, he pressed up hundreds of records himself with the orchestra, they do handmade covers. And it's the same thing, you look at Khan Jamal's the, the, for this record um, it just says Khan Jamal on the front the original was literally just a blank sleeve with the words Khan Jamal and some little stars on the front on a pasted cover and that yeah. was it and they've kind of again you know it's like all these kind of niche scenes it gains this kind of mythical quality but genuinely the music stands up for me this is a this is a really special record it's a Desert Island disc for me I, yeah. I could listen to Breath of, Breath of Life on loop forever Yeah, <laughs> it's so good Sunroll also
1: Philadelphia connection
0: here. Well, you've just preempted where I'm going to go. Yeah, the first step on my musical route is uh, via Sun Ra. Um, like you said, Sun Ra himself um, was kind of Philly-based. Um, they had the house in Philadelphia where yeah. the orchestra live, and still to this day, members of the orchestra live in the house in wow. Philly, as far as I know. I think Marshall Allen and yeah. some of the members of the group. Um, I mean, the, 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 the connection I've gone through is Philadelphia, but also space jazz. Um, specifically the track I've chosen the classic Space is the Place uh, by Sun Ra released in 1973 also same year released on Blue Thumb Records Kind of half laugh- I mean, I'm half laughing with it just how kind of crazy it is. It's, it's, like, yeah. it's, like twi- it's a 20-minute long track and it basically takes up the whole of the A-side of that record. And it's just basically just this sprawling
1: yeah. cosmic free-for-all. Just the um, same phrase repeated. Well, what sounds like 100 people. Basically just
0: chime in and out yeah. as and when they won. Um, but the irony of it is is actually probably it was very tightly orchestrated yeah. because Sun Ra was an absolute stickler for detail. You know, he would tra- like they would practice 14 hours a day kind of thing. Yeah. So it wasn't like, you know, I think a lot of people got Sun Ra, and have even now get Sun Ra kind of misconstrued as being someone that was just like a crazy guy, just off on his own one, who wasn't really a tight player. But actually it's, I think it was all intentional. Yeah, He had this musical vision and he wanted to execute it in that way. And he did exactly that.
1: It's the most like collective, almost pure, form of jazz. It seems right. like weird to say if it sounds so out there.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like listening to a Duke Ellington big band. Yeah, or like Mingus. But with a, a real, almost like a kind of drunk lean to it. Yeah. You know, where everything is really woozy and everyone, you know, is, you know, but, it's, it, but, but again, you know, it's, it's so unique. This, this track, where well, I think was probably the track that introduced me to Ra. I think this is probably one of the first ones I heard, like a lot of people. Um, it's the same name of the, uh, the, the Afrofuturist kind of sci-fi film Ra released yeah um, 1974 mm. um, and it's directed by John Coney and written by Ra and featured um, Sun Ra and the band within the context of like a black exploitation film yeah so kind of set in the ghetto kind of thing and it was uh, you got like the Black Panthers in there and all this stuff and it's a really unique film just from the perspective of you know obviously like in the 70s you've got the whole genre of black exploitation, and you know it was quite common to have famous Funk and jazz musicians soundtracking them. So you've got, yeah. you know, like Roy Ayers for Coffee, you've got Trouble Man, Marvin yeah. Gaye, Black Caesar, Isaac James Brown, right. Isaac Hayes yeah. for Shaft and Truck Turner yeah. and stuff like that. But to have Sun Ra basically do his own take on the genre is quite kind of bizarre. Yeah. And again, it doesn't fit in, it doesn't quite fit in with that territory that a lot of these other films Mm. were doing it's the same it feels very familiar and a lot of it's very grounded but at the same time it's completely wacky yeah Um, but he was again what's interesting about the film is he was making actually a serious point about blackness and you know presenting this philosophy the his ideas on uh, Afrocentricity and what it is to be black and yeah. all these things and really Sun Ra is the, the 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 founder of that movement. You know, we look at now artists like Flying Lotus, Erykah Badu, Shabazz yeah. Palaces, and before that, P-Funk and P-Funk even had that they were it,
1: yeah Afrofuturism
0: yeah. But even Sun Ra predates that. Yeah. He was doing this stuff even before P-Funk and all of that. So really, he is the 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 the, the, the originator of it all. Really. Um, and it's kind of interesting, I was reading about the film they're talking about like interpretations of the film and they were saying that the Black Panthers had a particular idea of what should be done, you know, in terms of raising awareness of black issues and kind of fighting for freedom and things like that. But it was interesting, Sunra actually had a slightly kind of conflicting view because he was more about just taking blackness elsewhere almost off the planet yeah. they were kind of more practical about dealing with things on the ground you know what they should be doing what they should be and Sun Ra had this kind of different approach which was like we space, should make a new world place. space is the place yeah. we don't need to be here and that's the interesting thing about Sun Ra I think you know famously there's the famous story of him being um, a conscientious objector when the Vietnam War came round. and you know the, 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 the judge says to him he said you know he was basically trial at the time and the judge said, we're, we're never going to see someone like you again, kind of thing that used a racial slur and summer. I said, no, you're right. And just repeated it back to him. It's true. You know, he was one of a kind. And I think that's what resonates. Although, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes in like jazz, particularly I find vocal jazz, it needs to fall in a particular yeah. category. I find some of these more spiritual vocal jazz releases They don't quite do it for me in the same way instrumental stuff does. Yeah, but it. what's interesting about this is it does, it just kind of feeds in. They're just used as instruments almost. Um, yeah. and, it, and it fits in with the whole Sun Ra mythos and, you know, it says on the, the, on the album, on the liner notes, it says vocals, and then in brackets it has space ethnic. <laughs> and, it's got, and then he's got like, you know, I think it's like six vocalists on there, yeah. you know, including John Gilmore and the fantastic June Tyson, and who you hear. And again, the vocals are panning from left to right, almost like call and response. Yeah. And then at the end of the record, you've got some very close, like John Gilmore's old vocals, I think, very close to the mic and then June Tyson's like in the distance. So yeah. it kind of creates this space within the actual recording. Also, the same year as Headhunters, again
1: using synthesizers in there. It's
0: kind of spacey uh, in its own right. Obviously, yeah. it's a lot more kind of grounded. It's not free jazz. Yeah, but it's much. the same. But the same idea of kind of you know yeah,
1: finding and, and Herbie Hancock had been looking yeah. at that Afrocentrism with even before that, my Sheen and crossing. It's a sextant, you know, we were talking about and how alien that music sounds.
0: It yeah. sounds cosmic. You look at the album cover, the sounds on it. Again, those sounds, but you've got to remember, like, you hear on Space is the place at the end, Sun Ra on the organ. You know, he'd been using electronic instruments almost like in, in the 50s, mm-hmm. you know, late 50s. And so, and you're like, holy shit, this guy, yeah. <laughs> this guy was way ahead. You know, Herbie Hancock was a pioneer. What does that make Sun Ra? You know, it's like, but yeah, fantastic record. Um, I've decided for the next step to go with the Pharaoh Sanders track, Astral Traveling, um, from his album, Thembi, uh, released on Impulse Records um, in 1971. Kind of ongoing theme, but there's a there's a there's more of a connection to sun rather than just the pure cosmic connection. Um, so pharaoh Sanders, before he became a solo artist in his own right, very early in his career as a young man, he played with rum uh-huh. in the orchestra. That makes sense. Um, and it was actually before he joined in the early sixties, before he joined Coltrane's band mm-hmm. um, in sixty five. Um, he cut his teeth with Sun Ra for a bit, wow. um, and he was at the time he was often homeless. I think this was when he was in New York, and um, the orchestra around New York as well at the time, and he was often homeless. So uh, Ra gave him a place to lodge. Uh, we gave him clothes, and he was the actual one that encouraged him to use the name Pharaoh. Oh. Which is where it all kind of starts, which makes complete sense yeah. when you look at Sunra and the Egyptian mythology that runs through all of his look and mm. everything. So it was actually him that gave Pharaoh Sanders the name Pharaoh. Wow, I didn't know. Um, that. And he obviously then ran with that. But yeah, I mean, this is this is a classic classic recording. Yeah, um, released in 1971. Uh, the track "Astral Traveling" um, features the fantastic um, Lonnie Liston Smith on uh, on keys that are just. You know, spacey roads line. Yeah, stuff.
1: apparently, it's the first time he'd actually played the roads. This track,
0: right? Yeah, I think I heard about that. That that story actually. He was saying, I think up until then he'd been a pianist, and they were in the they were in a session for something. He was recording, and he was in the corner yeah. playing around with the roads. People were just
1: unpacking their instruments. So right, he just saw this instrument, and he just saw it and just started like playing around on it, and instantly, you know, like well, I'd kind of run with that, and it just sets the tone for the album, and not just the album, but. Almost an entire genre of spiritual jazz in the seventies.
0: I, I feel that Pharaoh Sanders kind of tapped into a real f- format that obviously loads of people were inspired by. Yeah. So after having worked with Coltrane, um, and after Coltrane passed, and Pharaoh Sanders went off on his own to kind of make more cosmic jazz with Alice Coltrane and on albums like *Fat and the and things like that. Yeah, jazz um, and, uh, yeah, exactly. It, it, it's it's working around that same um, yeah. that same format. You know, you've got this bed of bells. And kind of extra percussion and all sorts of stuff like that and it feels and then you've got the roads that just float over the top it feels yeah. cosmic it's
1: what you know? what's jazz about it is same with Alice Portrain stuff, it's got this yeah. urban groove. Right. But coming off of that is this cosmic
0: And similar form. similar to the sunrise joint as well, with space is the place, the thing that really holds that down is actually the sax line. Yeah. And really that and maybe just like the rhythm section. Mm-hmm. And I mean they have really it's just the sax line. And that's kind of we've talked about this before, how some of the best there's free jazz where everyone is just doing their own thing, obviously, and you've got all these clashing textures and stuff, but then you've got the kind of freer-leaning jazz like this, which can be classed partly as free jazz, but at the same time, it's not completely free because it's got... The, well, it is completely free in a philosophical context, but it's, um, it's still got these musical, this musical foundation, yeah. a repeating bass line that just locks everything down and allows everything else to just glimmer, yeah. shift over the top of it but you never lose sight of the main groove of the track and I think that's why it's so
1: accessible to people. Yeah, it's a very accessible mm-hmm. album compared to a lot of his Further Out stuff. Right. And part of that is the eclecticism of this record because it goes from this very gentle, spacey track into some really free stuff like Red, Black and Green. Right. And then you've got Love, which is just a bass solo by Sesson would be. Yeah. So if you don't like this track, don't worry, because the next one.
0: Yeah. you just have to make it through the track that you don't like yeah. and generally people don't have the patience to sit five minutes through something they don't like yeah. <laughs> but yeah fantastic album and um, my next track is the same track Astral Travelling but this time by Lonnie Liston-Smith um, from his album of the same name it's actually I should say it's Lonnie Liston-Smith and the Cosmic Echoes um, his group uh, released about five or six albums with him, um, but this was the first one he put out with the group and it was released in 1973 on Flying Dutchman Yeah. It's like you planned it. <laughs> that magical year. It's funny actually listening, what's interesting about listening to this track again is it feels like it's taken that kind of delay and reverb spacey atmosphere with all the kind of delay and reverb on the instruments that you hear in uh, the Khan Jamal track in Breath of Life combined with the spacey roads that you hear in Pharaoh Sanders. It feels like a synthesis of mm-hmm. the two in terms of sound. Um, and it has a very similar quality to both those records. It yeah. feels like it synthesised both of them into this extra packet, <laughs> this new new thing. I mean, they're all very similar sounding records in terms of their sound. Yeah. But then obviously you've got the characteristic um, Indian influence in here. You've got Badal Roy on tabla, mm-hmm. um, who anyone who's listened to the, the Miles Davis Electric albums, you'll notice that he played with Miles. He's on on the corner, I think, yeah. on tabla and you've got someone there uh, you have got uh, Jita Vashi again it's not a name I'm familiar with on tambura mm. um it just looks like basically a one off appearance but you hear the tambura on a lot of recordings from the set similar times so like joe henderson's the elements you hear right. a tambura on that um you've got it on um like pharoah sanders uh album elevation yeah you know you hear it m- now in a a newer context with stuff like Matthew Horsell, I think used Mm. it recently. Obviously in O's to these. Yeah. But it's that thing that's become synonymous with the music of that era. That spiritual cosmic jazz often uses these Eastern instruments to great effect, be it the Koto, be it tambura, be it all of these interesting things, to give it just that extra, you know, I don't want to say like a kind of mysticism because it kind of perpetuates this idea of the mystically, but it, it it does have that quality. It has a higher it feels deeper and that's, I think mean, when people talk about spiritual jazz, it's not necessarily about being religious, it's about having a deeper connection to kind of musical cultures yeah. and, and the feeling of the music and connecting the dots across genre, across culture. Um, Ancestimate B is also on bass here. Yeah, I so mean, I he, he was just. True. I mean, we've talked about Cecil McBee before. He was on so many great records of the 70s. He really was like the spiritual jazz bass guy kind yeah. of thing. Obviously, Ron Carter was on stuff, but you know, a lot of his work was, you know, previously. But really, in the 70s, you see Cecil McBee. He's on all over like the Strata stuff, independent spiritual jazz stuff, but all sorts of people. You hear him on the Lonnie Liston Smith stuff. He really is kind of. He crops up on so many records. Yeah. On a fantastic basses. And still alive. And still alive. Yeah. Be good to see him. Yeah. don't know if he's
1: performed performances. No. He's Eighty-seven.
0: That would be amazing though if we saw him live at some point. Um, bit like Buster Williams, you know. Buster Williams again, you know, yeah. crops up on so many of these recordings. You know, he's on that Harold Land record earlier on. We we're talking about. But yeah, a fantastic album. Um, I think it's my my favourite of Lonnie Liston Smith's seventies. Cosmic Echoes albums, and also there's very few people in jazz that can uh, give Bobby Hutcherson a run for their money with the whole spiritual jazz beanie selection. <laughs> um, but I mean, loneliness Liston, like, generally it's like Bobby Hutcherson. You see him in the '70s with that bright orange knitted yeah. hat. But Lonnie niston Smith here is just going completely cosmic with a multicolored knitted beanie, and not just that, and a sweater to match. A
1: matching sweater. And a
0: huge collar as well, <laughs> like I mean. A Harry Hill
1: collar. I mean, it's, it's a serious look. Also, not many people who can give Hank Mobley a run for the money with the sweaters
0: Right. Okay. True. Yeah, he's, it's a double whammy. here. Yeah, yeah. he really he's coming. He's coming for both
1: Mobley and Hutchison.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, if he had
1: a pair of pinstripe bell bottoms, I don't even know like what like he's wearing. Well, who
0: knows what he's wearing down there? You can't actually see it on the record. Mm-hmm. On the yeah. inner sleeve, you open it and it's just got him. But then you've got the liner yeah, notes basically. where his kind of lower body would be. So mm-hmm. who knows what he's wearing? We need to know. If anybody know.
1: knows what. If anyone's
0: got pictures, it, like, if anyone's mine. got any promotional like you know memorabilia mm-hmm. of Lonnie Liston Smith in the seventies in that outfit. Yeah, please do get
1: in touch because we're curious to know and if if Lissa Smith is listening to this please tell us let us know who remembers what they were wearing 1973 I do
0: <laughs> I was wearing non-existent pants I was but a, a gamete you know that Slum Village lyric in uh, what's it in Get This Money where he says uh, when I was a little boy chilling in my daddy's nuts <laughs> 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 you know yeah one of the best lyrics in hip hop um yeah, fight me. Anyone <laughs> who disagrees. Um, <laughs> anyway, I've um, I've gone off topic. Lolliness and Smith, one of the best to ever. Touch the spacey roads. Can I guess where this is going? Uh go on then. Matume. That's yeah. the percussion on Cosmic Echoes. Right. Um, as travel. traveling. There we go. Yeah, you got the connection. It's um Matume features on the album. Um, and of course, uh, brings us to Harold Land's track, Matume. Again, you look at Harold Land's record, was it, nineteen seventy one? You know, all these albums are around. It's interesting that I mean your route went further back. back but it's interesting, you know, like I tried to keep the space theme going yeah. through and you look at all these records by Kanjamal, Sunra, Ferrisanders, Sun, Lonnie Liston Smith, Harold Land, they're all around that seventy one, seventy three, you know, that, that spacey fusion sound yeah. that you hear at that time is representative of all these was- records. Very
1: conceptually sound.
0: I, I was, know. well, I was inspired because after you, after it's, um, was it in last episode where you had a bird theme? Yeah. Yeah, where you managed to keep a bird theme running all the way through with multiple sub-themes. I thought, shit, I've got to up my, <laughs> I've got to up my thematic game here because w- w- we can't go into 2023, like, you know, just doing basic connections. Yeah. Like, oh, this guy played on this record. and like, like, This was the same year. We have to go conceptual. Yeah. So that that wraps up episode 10 of Roots. Um, Again, RIP to um, Khan Jamal and Matume, two of the all-time greats, sadly missed. That's episode 10 of Roots. Um, We're going to be continuing this this year. With
1: more complicated...
0: Tenuous, clutching at straws, uh, rambling, difficult... Yeah.
1: pointless get get ready for my route which is all albums that recorded when Sesame B was walking past <laughs> the <laughs> studio <Not> that niche <laughs> but anyway yeah
0: thanks to everyone who's uh joined us on the journey so far been listening along we really appreciate it uh, we appreciate the support thanks for the real ones that have stuck with us through our um, last couple of month hiatus after some serious technological woes so and all mass that Mass disorganization. Mass disorganization, but we're back. So join us again for another episode of Roots, a Jazz Impressions podcast. And finally When I was a young boy chilling in my daddy's nuts, all I could hear was a
1: rhyme and don't no cut. Growing up thinking I was nothing what a glut. Another thing, another book, another slut. All I wanna do is get paid. Oak town, don't stop today.